0: Real life.
1: Superpowers. You have a mission and a vision, and they help you to determine who to say yes to and who to say no to. And once I determined that my mission was to help translate complex ideas and stories into actionable helpful information for people to live better lives and to be better human beings in the world, that, then it made it really easy for me to say no to projects that I
2: thought were just sort of, you know, vanity books or things like that. Hey, everyone. In this episode, we speak with journalist and author Lisa Sweetingham. Her writing has appeared in The New York Times, Parade, Spin, Time Out New York, Health Affairs, and many other publications. Her track record includes the coverage of high-profile murder trials and Supreme Court nomination hearings for Court TV Online. She's super total. In order to bring her first book, Chemical Cowboys, to life, she spent four years following in the footsteps of DEA agents and ecstasy traffickers. Among other achievements, she's also a contributor to the New York Times bestseller, Thirst, a story of redemption, compassion, and a mission to bring clean water to the world, which she co-wrote with Scott Harrison, the co-founder of Charity Water. In an era of information and content overload, she's leading an impressive career as a peak performing creator, honing her craft and putting out content that's truly impactful. There's a lot that can be learned from her outlook on life.
0: Real life.
1: Superpowers. Up at the side,
0: it's a bird, it's a plane. Gentlemen, we can rebuild him. We have the technology.
1: live
2: superpowers
1: lisa welcome to our podcast thanks i'm happy to be here it's been a while
2: it's been yeah it's been a few years what are you up to these days
1: um i'm developing a podcast of my own and it looks at the culture sort of the obsession with murder in america and crime shows and true crime. So I'm developing that right now with my literary agent. And um, I'm also um, working on two different book proposals with two amazing women. One who is a, like a finance guru who helps people. She, you know, She's managed billions of dollars in assets for corporations and individuals. But her goal now is to help people find peace with money to have an emotionally abundant life while also being financially healthy. And then the other woman I'm working with runs a foundation called the Fistula Foundation, and she helps um, women living in poverty in India and Africa who've had terrible injuries after childbirth and are ostracized from their communities, and she helps to get them surgeries that basically save their lives. So um busy on those two fronts and then also Chemical Cowboys, which was my first book, which you're aware of because your father is in it. <laughs> he has a major role in it. It's uh we have um uh, various people we're wrapping up the the all the deals now, but we've got someone who wants to turn it into a TV show and then another team that is looking about possibly a documentary.
2: Wow. And so much to unpack just from those projects that you mentioned, because they all sound so fascinating. I think we could go on forever about each. Like, for example, with murder and the obsession, I always have this impression that TV doesn't do justice. Like it becomes all about the rating. And then all these quote unquote documentaries only show one side and people like leave watching any show thinking, wow, this dude is innocent. And I feel like it does a lot of injustice to the justice system and just in general, how the process should work. Like, what do you think about that?
1: Yeah, I think you're right. So I uh, started out my career in media uh, as a reporter for Court TV many years ago. So I would sit in a lot of those high-profile trials and watch um, all the evidence. And then you'd see kind of the snippets that would come out on TV at night. And it was just, it's like, um, gosh, how do I describe? I mean, it's the tip of the iceberg what you see. So there would be uh, verdicts that the public would be appalled by. And Maybe I would be too, but I would understand how the jury came to that verdict. Um, In terms of like the crime shows, you're right. So many of them have an opinion and they're really advocating rather than journalism. And I find some of the best crime shows right now are um, by the true journalists like Madeline Barron, who does a show called In the Dark. She does incredible work. And what she says is like she followed this case of this guy named Curtis Flowers, who was tried six times. Uh, and each time there was some kind of prosecutorial misconduct, like, like he, he was a black man who lived in the South and he, the prosecutor would get all white juries to convict him and then that would get overturned. And so Madeline Barron took on his case and just reinvestigated every aspect of the crime. He was sorry. He was on trial for murder of a terrible murder. Anyway, she took on the case and she said, like, I don't care, uh, whether I don't care what the facts are, I just want to find them. She says, I'm not advocating, I'm not looking to get him out of prison. I just want to know what happened. And in the end, they uncovered so much information and so much prosecutorial misconduct that the case went all the way to Supreme Court. And his conviction was overturned and he got freed. So there, so there, you're right. There's a huge disparity between kind of this like uh, very slick, polished advocacy crime show versus the um, very even, uh, open and balanced journalistic work that's being done. But it's hard to find those.
0: It's also hard to do that because for me, justice is always the hardest thing is to imagine it being objective, no matter who you are and know. It's like just coming to something objectively and where you're making content as a journalist or TV, at the end of the day, objective is really, it's factual and non-storyline. There's no, there's no dilemma. There's no question mark. It's a fact after fact. Okay. So, so if you have to narrate that without a story, you know what I mean? You're, it's, it's like a mathematical equation.
1: Well, I don't think there is such a thing as pure objectivity. And as storytellers, we have to... Uh, bring the reader and the listener along so they understand what we're getting at. And of course, we all have an opinion. But but what we can do is we can say, okay, why is this person telling me this? I I think I believe him, but does he have ulterior motives? And what does the other side say? And so I guess what I'm saying is like, you do have some Um, work out there even like making a murder it's a fascinating crime show but it's really a piece of advocacy I mean it seems like they tried to get the other side but it is really telling one side of a story
2: Uh, it does it does I'm sure if you pull people like you'll see people think like my my, uh, Michael Avery that's his name Stephen Stephen Avery is Mm -hmm. is innocent and it's just it's ridiculous You, you you watch it if you watch it critically you realize you you're not seeing the entire picture
1: we oh I mean we don't know you know, we just don't know. We don't have enough information.
2: So that's what I feel like. I feel like the the justice system is being scrutinized and only the parts that are sort of juicy are being brought out to the public. And then it's also like the narrative is being drawn based on what's interesting. I think it's pretty much what you're saying also. And it's just, it's a problem because it's also a problem in an era of fake news when sort of trials become, the real trials are now like on, on Facebook newsfeed and Twitter, instead of like trusting the the. And justice system. So,
1: Well, I, I would say, though, that the, the upside is that there has been a lot more attention paid to uh, instances of, uh, to the system as a whole. So, for instance, in America, at least, like, we have a decent justice system, but the truth is it is not fair and equal for all. And having been in the trenches of the system and knowing a lot of judges and prosecutors and defense attorneys, like... If you are um, wealthy and uh, have class and are white, you are going to get a much more favorable jury verdict and a better, you know, you can afford better defense.
0: No way.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, we're seeing that today as we speak is the second day of the George Floyd murder trial. This is going to be a real... um, kind of benchmark of have things changed or is it going to be another Rodney King where we've seen the video and we've seen how awful it is, but
0: what do you think is the outcome?
1: I couldn't possibly know. I I do think that the times have changed. Um, But here's the thing with this case is that the defense is, is going to really push hard that he died of heart failure, not of Derek Chauvin stepping on his neck and back, um they're going to and they're going to have a lot of competing um experts trying to determine what the real cause of death was now, if he had not been you know prone laying there in that position that he was in, he wouldn't have died, but um, so it's going to be up to a jury to, to decide, like oftentimes it comes down to the jury has to decide which experts do they believe.
0: Why did you choose this as your career choice? And, and how do you stay optimistic and sane uh, <laughs> uh, while while living through all of this? Because, because they, like, like I, you probably saw so many mistakes or bad choices or good choices of bad yeah. people yeah. that... I, you know, and you look, you look, you look more better than me. Like you look like you're mellow. <laughs> like how do you do that? Man?
1: You're so kind. Um, so I will say that uh, it, it does take a toll on you. I, I don't do that full time now, but when I did do it full time and I traveled around the country covering murder cases and living out of a suitcase, um, it would, it would be, it, it's fascinating. And I have a deep, like, insatiable curiosity about human nature and what makes people tick. So that was drove me to continue to do this. But there were times when it was like, I just needed a week off, you know, a month off, I needed to be in nature, I needed to be with my family. And I think one thing that I um, truly carried with me from that experience, and um, Noah, I think your dad probably could relate to this, most police that I know do, is that because you see so much like evil and so much horror and so much um, just tragedy, you begin to really appreciate life and the people you love in every minute. And I have to say, like, sometimes my husband will get, like, really upset in traffic or he's late and he gets, like, stressed out and that's yeah, how stuff... did the guy
0: with the chainsaw feel?
1: <laughs> 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 yeah, that stuff does not faze me. I'm like, eh life is too short to worry about those things. Cause I know that it could be taken any minute, you know? That's
2: fantastic. And I, and, and I think you're always, it seems like based on uh, your career choices that impact and doing something that's really significant is something that's driving you. Was that always the case? Like how did you start your career?
1: Um, it took me a while to figure it out. I, I, I've always been sort of someone who chased adventure so at first I thought maybe I was going to go into psychology or social work, and then I just knew that like writing and uh, nonfiction writing, investigative reporting, asking questions was my passion. Uh, but I didn't really I didn't graduate journalism school till I was thirty one, and uh, so I got started late in my career. But um, at at the point where I felt like I had enough um, credibility behind me and enough experience was when I decided I'm only going to choose projects that are meaningful to me. And I'm only going to choose to work on a lot of the work I do is helping people write books. Um, It's called collaborating. A lot of people say ghostwriting, um, but, but it's not ghostwriting because you you're there's credit and you're very involved and the two of you work together. So it's a collaboration and, I decided at some point that I would only work on books that I thought would bring goodness into the world and help people live better lives, which is why I worked with Scott Harrison, who you know, and Blake McCoskey and Pat Dossett, who you interviewed, who I adore, who do uh, made for. And this past year, I finished a book with a woman who's like an ethics guru at Stanford and, and London School of Economics, and we did a book about the power of ethics So, you know, actually, Blake was the one. We worked together on a project called Made For, and he was in his 20s, and he was kind of, you know, a little bit scattered in terms of, like, there were so many people who wanted his time and his attention. And he worked with a life coach who really taught him that, like, you know, you have a mission and a vision, and they help you to determine who to say yes to and who to say no to. And once I determined that my mission was to help uh, translate complex ideas and stories into a- a actionable, helpful information for people to live better lives and to be better human beings in the world, That then it made it really easy for me to say no to projects that I thought were just sort of you know vanity books or things like that.
2: What did you do between your 20s and your 30s when you finished uh, journalism school?
1: I lived in L.A., Uh, I grew up in Los Angeles, and uh, I went to school in Montgomery, Alabama, in the south, where I got to really see what it was like there. I went to undergrad school there and studied psychology. I was chasing love. I I had a boyfriend from there, and so I moved there, and we went to school together. His father was Japanese, and he was a— Karate master in a style called Yoshikai karate. And so I studied karate under his father and became a black belt and traveled and competed. Yeah.
2: (laughs) Uh, I'm a green belt in ninjutsu.
1: You are. Okay. So you know, (laughs) it's very addicting and it feels great to be able to like fight as a woman and feel confident in your ability to punch. <laughs> but yeah, you know, just a lot of college and chasing uh, adventure and trying to figure what was next. And I always knew I wanted to live in New York. And uh, so when I got an opportunity to go to Columbia, that was it for me. I was very happy.
2: Okay. So and, and then what from then? I mean, I guess it still wasn't smooth sailing and you sort of just took on like every project that you could to sort of grow.
1: So I I knew I wanted to work in magazines, but I also wanted to write books. So I got a job. It was uh, I graduated a few months before September 11th when the Twin Towers came down. So I I walked into Time Out New York, the magazine there and said, Do you guys need help? I'm around. I know, you know, we just went through this crazy experience in New York. And I don't know if people are quitting, but I'm here and I'll work for free. And they brought me on and pretty soon I worked my way up to be a technology editor there where I just like uh, handled all like the the tech stories, which at the time was like stories about smartphones, which (laughs) because that's all we really there wasn't a lot of technology. And then a very good friend of mine who was working at Core TV said, look, I'm leaving to go run another magazine and there's an opening and I think you'd be great for it. So I went over there. Um, but during all that time, I had been reading the news and hearing these stories of these um, Orthodox Jewish teenagers from like the Hasidic communities in Brooklyn getting caught at JFK Airport with all these ecstasy pills in their bags, hidden away in their bags. And I was like, this is a crazy story. And I had tried to do stories about that community before In terms of the interesting ways that they would get Tay sex out of the genetic line by giving, uh, by testing the children and then giving the matchmaker the information. So no one in the community knew, no one felt ostracized, only the matchmaker knew. And then she would only match children that didn't carry the dominant trait. Amazing, interesting stuff. It was very low tech, high tech. So I, but they were like, you're not Jewish. Get out of here. Don't come near us. Like, you're a very nice girl, but please go away. So, I ended up going to the New York DEA offices and getting to know the head of New York DEA, the Drug Enforcement Administration. And I was like, look, like these are great stories. No one's ever told this story. I just want to get to know you guys and see if, like, maybe we can write a book about it. So, he introduced me to Bob Gagney. And then at some point, I can't remember who, I think it was the guy in Florida introduced me to your father. And then it was like, so, and so I wrote a book proposal and we sold it to, uh, Ballantyne at Random House. And, um.
2: What was my father's job when you were introduced? Was that like in retrospect?
1: So he, okay. So just to back up, the original book was going to be all about like Bob Gagne, this New York DE agent who takes down like these ecstasy dealers in America, and then um, an agent in Florida said, well, you have to talk to Colonel Gadi Shed. He runs uh, the intelligence, all intelligence for Israeli National Police. So I was like, oh, OK, I'll get on the phone with him. And your father was like the best storyteller. And I don't mean like fictional. I mean, like he just knows how to like give you detail by detail. And um, he was amazing. And I realized, wait a minute, there's like a whole other new section of the book that has to be told. And it was about the mob bosses who are actually controlling all of the ecstasy production and kind of bringing in, you know, their murderous criminal ways to America. And it was about how America and Israel came together, thanks to your father, to bring the mob bosses down and also to take care of like the, the ecstasy proliferation problem we were having in America. So yeah, I met your dad. I want to say it was like 2007 I came out to visit. And he introduced me to many characters who are in the book. And um, I, 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 this is a, a time in my life that I cherish because it was um, a wonderful experience to just for the first time be in Israel, but to also have him as a guide you know, to the underworld.
2: That's so cool. And it's also cool, like how you were open minded enough to identify when you should, you maybe should pivot because there's an opportunity to change the story because it's easy to, you know, working on something creative, it's easy to sort of cling to it and, you know, not want to change what you've already done.
1: You're so right. Have you had that experience? Because it's, it's hard to, to stop and say, wait a minute, there's a better way and I got to be open to it.
0: How do you know how to give a book proposal? How did you know how to, it's something very entrepreneurial that you just said, okay, you know, of course I did. But, you know, I've got people asking me on, on books, like, how do I write a book? i like, how did you know how to write a proposal? How did you know how to write the right template so they would see it as an offering okay, at all? I like
2: to actually make it a reality.
1: Okay. So the way that I've always worked is through publishers. And um, if you are, let's say you're an entrepreneur and you've got a great story and maybe you don't have time. I, you, you want to... You have an agent. And to get an agent, you kind of really have to ask friends and family and people who have agents in New York and L.A. Uh, And what happens is an agent will a good agent will help you develop a book proposal that they know is uh, sellable in the market. You really shouldn't go out and buy a book that says, "Here's how to write a book proposal" because those books are outdated and and they don't they're not tapping into the market. An agent will know based on your story, your idea, your like they understand where your book fits in a bookshelf and they understand which editors at the different publishing companies would be interested in your book. So they're going to help you develop a book proposal that really can sell. And there's so many pieces to that proposal that kind of have to be just right. And um, But what I also would say is that most entrepreneurs don't have the time or the energy and they're too close to the story to write it well. And an agent can also help you find a writer to develop that book proposal with you that you would pay. Uh And then that's – so in my case, because I was already a writer, I had written a book proposal right out of journalism school that looked at um, the ways we were using genetic technologies in our personal lives. And my agent – I met my agent who is still my agent today. I adore him. His name is um, David Halpern. He's at the Robbins office in New York. He's fantastic. Um, He took me on. He was kind of young – And getting started, and uh, we sold that book proposal, but it was such a low amount, and it was to a young editor who we didn't think was going to stay at that. And so we uh, decided—sorry, we didn't sell it. We got an offer. We decided not to sell it. We never got any other offers. So so there went that idea. But then what happened was, because we had that experience together, when I started to understand the bigger ecstasy story that became Chemical Cowboys— he really knew how to help me develop a book proposal just for the right editor at random house who he knew would love this story. So the short answer is get an agent.
0: (laughs) That's why again, the pivots that you do are very logical because it sounds like a lot of trial and error.
1: Yeah, for sure. I mean, when we didn't sell my first idea for a book, It was, I wouldn't say it was devastating, it was disappointing, but, you know, I've never been one to sit and dwell on. It's just like, okay, why didn't that sell? What's the problem? Okay, let's, let's, let's move on. Let's do better next time. The other thing I would have to say that my agent taught me, and he's brilliant, is that um, it's sometimes the, the best move is to walk away. And we've had this in deals before with book deals where, you know, we know what our number is, and if they're not going to meet it, sometimes you just walk away. And we a few times we've had people come back and say, okay, all right, we'll meet your number. Um, and and it's just like in any other business, but in book publishing, it's um, it really is something. And I guess I bring it up because writers uh, are so vulnerable and very often will take whatever you want to give us. And I would say that, after you've had a few a couple of books under your belt or a couple of successes you 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 should be a little more choosy about if you can you know you try to be a little more choosy about what you will and won't do and and what it's worth to you
0: It's less about the opportunity, more about the like the journey itself, yeah, what, what you are mean? you
1: bringing into the world? what is this Are you going to ever look back and say? Yeah, I'm sure glad I did that book about, you know, how to become a zillionaire by twenty-eight. Like I mean, maybe for some people that would be great, but for me that's just not my vision.
0: But just working with the type of people, you know, you're you're talking with people, you know, the the mob bosses and now you're talking to people who are helping, you know, people who are pregnant that got hurt in. So- I think
1: well, and then just to bring it full circle, the the podcast I'm developing now does go back to murder. But my hope is to draw out um, these cultural touchstones that we all can relate to, to help people better understand uh, at least America's obsession with murder. And what are we really getting at? And what are the upsides of our obsession? And how can we actually focus on and obsess over things like the death penalty in America? Are we okay with you know, killing people who might be innocent? You know, are we okay with how we treat the parents of mass murderers who are, you know, doubly victimized? Um, are we okay with how we treat the children of um, intimate partner violence? Who's one or, which, by the way, that's my personal story is my own mother, when she was two years old, her father shot and killed her mother and then killed himself. So she grew up uh, with an uncle and an aunt and never knew her real parents because they died of intimate partner violence is what they call it. Now, I have to say that sounds really dark, but growing up in my house, we joked about it. Like, this is, this is what we do. We talked about the crazy Valenzuela family. So there's also that there that draws me to what makes people tick. And so one of the episodes that I'm developing looks at how the children of intimate partner violence, people like my mother and her sister, um, are have Really gotten um, forgotten by research and studies. We don't know what happens to them after the first year. No one really um, is doing any research to see like how they fare and what happens to their children in the multigenerational generational trauma that gets passed down so all of that stuff is really interesting to me and when you say like yeah i started out in this horror show (laughs) of a career and then i started moving toward like i want to work with the good guys but but i but i kind of want to bring it full circle and maybe help um people look a little deeper at our obsession so we're not just watching shows about you know uh, people who disappear uh, white girls in peril that kind of a thing
2: and at what stage did you start feeling confident in your output?
1: Um, it was when Thirst, Scott Harrison's book that we worked so hard on and was such a labor of love, when that uh, debuted on the New York Times bestseller list, for me, that was like, okay, this is good. Like that was a moment of, this is, and not just because it was, uh, you know, like a, a pat on the back for all of us, but that I knew that the more people that read his book, the more Donations they were going to get to Charity Water, the more lives they were going to save, the more people who were going to get water finally, the more girls who would be able to go to school instead of walking eight hours a day to fetch water for their families. So for me, that was like, oh, impact. That was good. That gave me a sense of confidence.
2: Which I completely understand, and I'm even a bit jealous of because it sounds so amazing to do stuff that's so meaningful. But overall, did you feel like you were improving your skill? Do you maybe look back at stuff that you wrote when you were younger and think, oh, God, what is this? Or,
1: You know, I think anyone who cares about their craft knows that, like, you can never – I mean, you can have a moment of confidence, but you can never be too confident because then you stop growing, right? i I used to think that I was a decent storyteller because of the feedback I would get. But then in the last book I worked on about ethics – <laughs> the woman I worked with was, she comes from a law background and, and education. And she had very um, specific ideas and rules about the way a paragraph should be structured. And I remember her getting so frustrated with me because I would throw random details into a paragraph and she'd be like, where's the topic sentence? Where's the concluding? And I was like, it doesn't sound creative. But I have to say, she actually taught me to be more organized in my thinking and my writing.
2: That's really interesting because I went to law school mm-hmm. and I did an internship with this big corporate firm and everything was exactly that, like organizing with rules. And I've been thinking ever since, which is over a decade since this went, this went down, that I keep evolving the way I write because I sort of drop those rules and I try to make stuff more approachable and less structured in that sense. Like it needs to be coherent and people need to understand it. But I've sort of come to a conclusion that the more natural it is sounding and the more you write as if you're speaking, the more people can relate to it.
1: Well, the, see, that's great though. You came from an opposite foundation of where you came with boundaries and rules and order, and now you can be more creative. I, I think that's great. It's a balance between the two, isn't it? Noah, what is your superpower?
2: Wow, um, Alaska Nanda.
0: Okay, actually, I, there's two main ones that I like most. So it's it's not objective, but one I think it's the the, the persistence, and the second is organization of demystification so what's amazing about no superpower, is uh the organization and, and she she dissects it until she has a natural sense of how to organize the room or the company or anything else and she's willing to put the effort where everybody else will stop because they're going to go to someone else and outsource and ask questions for them to
2: organize so this is interesting because i feel like he's describing my dad I didn't know
1: that about your dad. Your your dad is a very commanding presence, so I believe you. Yes.
2: Yeah. I feel like I think you you have the ability to make people feel really comfortable and open up to you as if they've known you forever.
1: Oh, that's nice. I just think that I I'm genuinely interested. Um and I I don't want people to I I you know, I I I'm not judging. I'm really, and look, everybody has a, you know, bias and judgment in them, but I am truly interested in human beings. And, um, so if someone opens up to me, it's an honor and I want to, I want to protect that.
0: What would be your kryptonite?
1: Oh, uh, (laughs) okay. So, uh, my husband would tell you because he's seen it is, um, cold, cold weather, and being tired. So when we uh, first started dating we went to London together to do a story we were working on for his magazine. And my husband is someone who loves the cold and can live on very little sleep. And when we got to London, I was so tired. And he was like, up at six, ready to go up at six the next day, ready to go. Let's go do those interviews. And I was like, just let me sleep. And um, we've had a few travels together where he knows that like, he's going to get up and go do his thing. And he'll come get me when when I've had
2: enough sleep. So wait, he's also a journalist?
1: He is a luxury travel uh, journalist and content producer. So he ran a magazine called Rob Report for many years. He was the editorial director and his specialty is like family travel. So when we first uh, started dating on our first date, actually, I was like, well, if you could go anywhere, where would you go? And I can't remember what he said, but when he asked me, I said Africa. And he said, oh, well, I just got invited to Africa. Maybe you'll come with me. And I was like, yeah, right. LA boy, big talker. But no, that summer we went on a trip to Africa with the filmmakers, uh, Derek and Beverly Jobert, who own um conservation camps in Botswana and Kenya and Tanzania. And um we traveled around with them and we saw gorillas in Rwanda and we communed with nature and we fell in love.
2: Wow, you have such a regular life.
1: <laughs> no, but he's wonderful. In fact, he um he and my nine our nine-year-old daughter uh left on Sunday to once a year. They like to go ski in Tahoe and um they go for a week, and I'm like that's great. I love to ski, but I can't be in the cold for a week. So I I fly up on Wednesday to meet them there because I just really, I can't, I know those aren't very exciting. Those aren't like emotional kryptonite.
2: I'm wondering, the nine-year-old daughter, do you have, do you have more kids or is she the only kid?
1: I have two stepkids, um, a a girl who's uh, 20 and a boy who's 18. Um, they're, but they don't live with us anymore. The, the boy lives with his mom and uh, the girl is, is in her own apartment going to college. Um, and I've known them since they were in elementary school.
2: You know about your daughter and, you know, being, being the daughter of two content creators who, who seem mission driven, like she's probably absorbing a lot of values. I'm thinking of, you're probably like really empowering her based on your journey.
1: I I do give her a lot of um, room to express herself and have her own opinions about everything from, you know, uh, when she was a little girl, the doctor would always have to ask first before he could, you know, touch her, examine her. Because the, when I was growing up, that was just a thing like, just do whatever the doctor tells you um, to, you know um, – what she wants to eat for dinner and that causes problems sometimes because she's used to making her own decisions (laughs) at nine she's like i'm not gonna eat that and i'm not gonna watch that and i'm not gonna you know so she's a little bit of a brat but i love her (laughs) she'll be someone else's problem when when she grows up (laughs) how are your kids how old are they now
2: i have a two-year-old he's also very opinionated
1: (laughs) that's that's a fun age though
2: I have a four year old
1: and a three year old. Oh, uh, four is such a great age.
2: So uh what's next for you? When's the next book coming out?
1: I think what's next for me is going to be this podcast, if we can sell it and get a good deal and bring it to a home that I feel comfortable with, that it's that they're gonna understand the the mission. Um, and then I don't know. You know, I'm excited to travel again, to be honest. I'm excited to get out and uh my husband and I are thinking about spending a month in the UK this summer with our daughter, and just going to Italy and spending time in London, and and maybe going um, just to places we haven't seen before.
0: That's beautiful. It's either the podcast or just vacating in exotic places. These are the choices.
1: No, always both. <laughs> always <laughs> both. But,
2: but Lisa, you gotta you, you gotta still do the podcast, even if the gatekeepers don't let you.
1: Uh. Yeah. Yeah. I I think we'll sell it. I think it's a good idea and it, and it's never been done before. The kind of the approach that we're going to take with it. So I think we'll sell it. It's just a matter of like how much support we're going to get, what kind of resources we're going to get. And if I can really do it the way I want to do it. Um, but you know, look, there's also various book opportunities that I'm excited about. You know, the two that I told you about, depending on how those go. Um, but yeah, I mean, honestly, it, it feels to me a little bit, and I don't know if you guys feel this too, but the last year has been such a major reset uh, through COVID in everyone's lives that um, I think I, I'm just kind of open to shifting a lot of things in my life. Like, you know, maybe we do live somewhere else for a while. Maybe we... Um, you know, maybe we try to work harder or maybe we try to work less. Maybe we homeschool my kid. Probably not that one, but, you know, <laughs> yeah, I think about it. Yeah. yeah, you know, it's just, it could be, it could be so many, so many opportunities to rethink um, things, especially now that like not every, I never have to work in an office, but so many of us don't have to work in an office anymore. That's one of the best things to come out of this. I love it. Although your kids are younger now, so they're home. They're practically homeschooled. As yeah, it is. I, mine is. Just wait till they get to kindergarten. Ooh, it's going to be great.
2: Yeah, and scary too. <laughs> but yeah, I'll I'll I'll, uh, I'll get yeah. over that one. Yeah. Uh, it seems like there's a lot planned for you in the future and a lot of exciting things. You know, the stuff that you write about and that you cover, it's also fascinating. So maybe sometime we'll regroup and uh, revisit and talk about the stuff that you're doing again.
1: I would love that.
2: Awesome. And yeah, and let's keep in touch. Bye. Thank you.
1: Okay. Bye guys.
0: Real life.
1: Superpowers. Up the side, It's
0: a bird. It's a plane. Gentlemen, we can rebuild him. We have the technology. It's alive. Real life
1: superpowers.